Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We are coming to the end, quickly approaching the conclusion of this sermon series through the book of Revelation. And I've entitled this series, Spirit Speak, What Jesus is Saying to the Church. And it has been a fascinating study for me personally, incredibly challenging and edifying. I hope it has been for you as well. And God saved the best for last, not just the last book of the Bible, but the last chapters of the last book of the Bible. It really ends where it began. The Bible comes full circle. The first few chapters of the book of Genesis are directly connected to the last few chapters of the book of Revelation. So the story of humanity has been one long circle coming back to where we started, coming back to a place of unbroken fellowship with God and with each other, coming back to a place of heaven on earth. The primary Old Testament passages for the one we'll be studying today, Revelation chapter 21. This is Revelation 21 part two. We uh, covered part one last week. And so again, there are tons of hyperlinks throughout the book of Revelation to the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is saturated with references and allusions to the Old Testament, more so than any other book in the New Testament. And so the Old Testament hyperlinks, the partner passages in the OT are Ezekiel and Isaiah chapter 60. These are the primary Old Testament allusions that John is using in Revelation chapter 21. So I want to read this together. We're talking about the new Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb. So we're going to be starting in verse 9, Revelation 21, verse 9. I don't want you to get bogged down in the details of the blueprint for the new Jerusalem. There's going to be measurements and the tendency is for us to tune out. I know that's my tendency is I just tune out when the Bible goes into these details about things, I don't automatically lean into these biblical blueprints, but I want us all to intentionally engage, right? To not tune out. So let's start in verse nine. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who, walked with, who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it, it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the four, fourth emerald, the fifth oinx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. 
I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does, not, who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. All right, let's take a deep breath before we dive in. You might have noticed some very familiar things in this chapter. The streets of gold in heaven. There's quite a few hymns that has, that has this verse in them. And the pearly gates. When I get to heaven and stand in front of the pearly gates, that's another very common image that comes from what we just read. Right out of the gate here, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Again, this is just fascinating, fascinating, because he goes on to give the apostle John a VIP tour of the new Jerusalem that is coming down out of heaven. The throne room of heaven, which has been the centerpiece of the book of Revelation is now descending to earth. So Jesus, after he was resurrected, and after spending 40 days in resurrected ministry, revealing himself to a lot of people, he ascended to heaven where he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And there's coming a day, the Bible teaches, the book of Revelation in particular, when that heavenly scene, when that heavenly environment is going to invade the earth. But it's very interesting, before the before the Apostle John takes us on this tour, actually before he is taken on a tour by an angel, and he's just trying to keep up with all that he's seeing, this is unimaginably glorious, right? The, the Apostle John is stretching the limitations of human vocabulary in an attempt to describe the glory and the beauty of this city. But yet it starts with, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And remember, we're dealing with apocalyptic literature here. Like So most of the Bible, we're bebopping along and we have our, these are our hermeneutic spectacles, right? This is how we interpret the Bible. And we're going along and we're assuming that the Bible is literal unless it's obviously not. And so we, but then it comes to a screeching halt. <laughs> when we go from the book of Jude to the book of Revelation, all of a sudden we're in different territory. All of a sudden it requires downloading a different software in order to interpret apocalyptic literature. Let's see your glasses. And so look, I take off my literal spectacles and I put on my apocalyptic lenses. And so now, you know, now all of a sudden I'm seeing it for what it is. It is a radically different genre of biblical literature. And so when we know what we're dealing with, we change the rules of interpretation. Now, there are some people that believe that this is going to be a literal city. Um, there are some serious, serious students of scripture that believe this is going to be a literal city. And that's possible. But I think it's more likely that the Apostle John is doing what he's done throughout the previous chapters of the book of Revelation. He's using graphic images and symbols as a way of communicating truth. That's what apocalyptic literature does. So he says here, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, he's not taking John and showing him an actual woman. He's not introducing John to the bride. He's showing John the bride. 
So he says he sets the ground rules at the very beginning of this interaction when he says, I'm going to take and show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And so they go, he takes him on this journey in the spirit. And the apostle John might be expecting to meet a woman, but he sees a city. So that tells you the type of literature we're dealing with is the angel calls the city the bride of the lamb. This is the radiant bride of Christ. The city is the bride. Now, this isn't the first time in the Bible, far from it, that marriage is used as a metaphor. As a matter of fact, every marriage is given to us by God. The institution of marriage is given to us by God to communicate a deeper spiritual reality. Marriage is an illustration of how God wants to interact with his people. God takes the most intimate of human relationships and he uses it as a way of describing how he wants to interact with us. And so some of us, some of us have a dysfunctional relationship with God. If you go into a marriage and you don't think that it's based in relationship, if you go into a marriage and you think if you just check the right boxes, then you're going to have an awesome marriage, that's never the case, right? It's got to be sincere. It's got to be authentic, right? There has to be communication that happens where I listen to my spouse and my spouse listens to me. And it's a, it's a, it's, it's a long-term relationship where we grow in our knowledge of each other over time. And marriage, in Ephesians chapter 5, I want to read this part here. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. So it's interesting here, the Apostle Paul is doing some premarital counseling, and yet he breaks out into a tangent about the very purpose of marriage. The, like every wedding should be a reminder of who we are in God's eyes, in the same way that a groom pursues his bride. God pursues his people in the same way that a groom will go to great lengths to express his devotion to his bride. God has gone to great lengths to demonstrate his love for his people. And he says here that he's talking about the church. He said, this is a mystery. He's talking about the church. And so God, in the book of Revelation, uses this very relevant, regardless of the culture you're in or the time in which you live, he, this very relevant illustration of marriage that this angel says to John, I'm about to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he takes him to a city, which by the way, he never meets a woman in the city. Right? This, this isn't the honeymoon city for the bride and the groom, right? Th there is no woman there because the city is the woman, because the new Jerusalem is the church. God uses the closest of human relationships as an illustration of how he wants to relate to us. And the key word in all of this is relationship. Do you have a relationship with the lamb? Do you have a relationship? not just an acquaintance, an acquaintance with God will not cut it. 
Do you remember this passage in Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not, did we not do all of these awesome things in your name? Did we not do all of this supernatural stuff in your name? And Jesus said that he will turn to them and say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And he's using that word no in the biblical sense, in the Old Testament sense, when Adam knew Eve, they didn't just exchange phone numbers. The two became one, right? It was an incredibly intimate knowledge. I never knew you. Do you have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Let me pause here because the in the book of Revelation, he goes on to describe at great lengths the beauty of this new Jerusalem, the glory of this city. And this is the church. The church is the wife of the lamb. The church is the bride of Christ. And let me pause here and say something that I don't do often enough. When it comes to speaking well of the bride of Christ. I have a tendency to critique the bride of Christ, but what I, what I want us to see is that the real church is beautiful. The real church is radiant. The real church is glorious. And so to, to sort through all of the counterfeit and find the real deal. It's out there. There is always a remnant, and the remnant is always in the minority. So there's this form of godliness, right? In the last days, there's going to be these people that are going to be religious, but lost. They aren't going to be saved. There's this delusion of salvation that comes from this form of godliness, this religiosity, this churchianity, but the, the real church has always been there. If you keep up with, with what's happening in the church world, the capital C church, the church seems to be continually embroiled in scandal and corruption and evil. And it's so easy for us to focus on the bad parts, to focus solely on the disease and not see the beauty. There is always a remnant. The real church is silently serving the least of these around the world, in our communities, in our cities. And we need to do, I need to do a better job of acknowledging the radiance of the remnant. Now, you guys have been the remnant to our family. Over the past year, over the past year, We've seen the real church. So we, we've gone from, from seeing the counterfeit and being deeply wounded by those that claim, those that claim to be religious, but something isn't right. You know, there's something isn't right. You you they're saying the right words, but it doesn't seem to flow from the right place. So we go from being deeply wounded by the counterfeit church to being deeply loved by the remnant, by you. You are what I'm trying to describe. I could use examples of people going on trips all over the world and they're serving the least of these anonymously. So they're handing out food to the starving. They are drilling wells so that villagers can have clean water. They are working hard behind the scenes to end sex trafficking. The remnant is at work, but our, to drive it home, we've been the recipients of being ministered to by the real church. There's, and there's such beauty in that. We go from one of the most horrific experiences of our lives to one of the most beautiful. When the real church shows up, it is radiant. It's the bride of Jesus.
And so thank you for being that real world example of what the real church looks like, of what it means to be the church. And it's our heart's desire that we could that we could be that for others. In 21.10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The mountain location reminds us of God's special meeting place with human beings. Throughout the Old Testament, God met his people on a mountain. But only a select few could gain entrance to the top of the mountain. And what we'll see in just a moment is what this New Jerusalem is saying is that every Christian has access to the God of the mountaintop. This God that is surrounded by lightning and thunder and earthquakes is that this city on a mountain is where God dwells, and every Christian is an inhabitant of this mountaintop city. Glory is a prominent theme in these final chapters. It's associated with the temple and with the appearing of God in the Old Testament. You have the glory of God falling down on this place and filling this place, this temple in the Old Testament the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God that inhabited the Holy of Holies. And then we have what is always associated with glory is light. In verse 23, well, let's go to verse 11. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And again, here is the apostle John that is, he is, grasping for words to describe what he is experiencing. It's like, it's kind of like, you know, it's like there's nothing like it. And so he's trying to use, he, he is trying to use a vocabulary that is woefully inadequate to describe what he is experiencing, what he is seeing. And then he goes on in verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and the lamb is its lamp. And the lamb is its lamp. So we have this idea of perfect light, not a light that blinds, but a light that warms. Perfect light in this perfect place where we are immersed. We are surrounded by the glory of God. The glory of God is the atmosphere of the new Jerusalem. And this glory that is, this light that is a product of this glory that surrounds us, we're immersed in God. And we'll see in a moment that this city has no temple which the original audience would have been shocked by this, right? Because the temple, it was always about the temple. The temple was the very centerpiece of worship for God's people for thousands of years. The temple is where they went to meet with God. And so the very fact that this chapter says there is no temple is huge, right? The city is the temple, which means we dwell in the presence of God. It's not like God is a part of the city. There's not a temple in the city that God, there's not an address in the city where Jesus lives. The city is Jesus. The city is God. And so we are in Christ, surrounded by him, immersed in him. It's also very significant here that in verse 24, he mentions the nations. And in verse 26, he says it again. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. And another translation for that word nations could be Gentiles. And the Gentiles will walk by its light. 
the glory and the honor of the Gentiles will be brought into it. And this is again, right? Gentiles are never second class citizens in God's kingdom, right? The Jews don't occupy the penthouse suite in the New Jerusalem. The Gentiles, the nations that are representing redeemed humanity in all of its cultural diversity. The distinctiveness of different cultures and peoples is not wiped out in the New Jerusalem, but redeemed in harmony with each other. The nations bring in their splendor and all the diversity of riches, both material and intellectual and artistic and spiritual. No single culture, get this now, no single ethnicity can fully display the glory of God. It takes every culture coming together by the power of the Holy Spirit, joining us below the surface at the deepest levels. It's like a, it's like a billion piece jigsaw puzzle and every people group is a piece of the puzzle. And it's only when you assemble the pieces that you can see the full face of God to have the humility to know that I am just one piece of the divine image. And when I see someone of a different ethnicity, knowing that I need them to have a better picture of who God is. We have the same spirit, but, but it gets expressed through different cultures. You know, I was this past week looking at my library, which has been greatly reduced over the last couple of years. And I am, I was shocked. I never really thought about it before that over, I, I, at least 98% of my library is written by white men. And I'm not going on a rant against white dudes, right? I, I am very grateful for the way that God has used these brothers. Has, they've been gifted with unusual insight into God's word. But if I, I'm just looking at my library, right? And I'm thinking to myself, are there... Are there no theologians in Africa? Are there no theologians in South America? Where are the indigenous voices that help shape my view of God? And I was convicted, convicted of how ethnocentric my faith has been from the very beginning. I, this, is how, this is how I was trained. And I'm not blaming my teachers but we are part of a system that has marginalized theological voices from other cultures. And if I were being honest, I would say that, that there's this underlying arrogance that God has somehow especially gifted Caucasians to understand theology. And so we go to these other places to teach them what we know rather than to learn. Tell me how you see God. Again, to have the humility, the awareness that the Bible wasn't written by white people. It was written by brown people. And, and the, the global church today, right? Where there, there are leaders in the Middle East there are Christian leaders in Africa, and rather than marginalize their voices because their because their theology that is being expressed culturally doesn't align with my narrow view, with my ethnocentric view of the Bible and of God, no single culture can fully display the glory of God. No people group can bear the weight of the full divine image. So the Bible says in the book of Revelation that every nation will be a part of this new Jerusalem. Back in chapter 7, verse 9, 
which by the way, if you have some suggestions, please send them to me for theologians of color or female theologians. I'm, I'm asking and I'm looking on my social media. I'm trying to, because social media becomes this echo chamber. And so you have a bunch of evangelical white guys um, that are high-fiving each other on social media. So I've been trying to deconstruct that echo chamber by inviting other voices into my into my newsfeed and um, I'm looking for suggestions you know where I can add to not take away I'm not going to take away but I want to add to because I know it will challenge my cultural Christianity and it will enrich my faith um, as I learned from people that have, that the people that are reading the Bible through a radically different cultural lens. In, chap in chapter seven, verse nine, after these things, I looked and there was an enormous crowd that no one could count, made up of persons from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the lamb, dressed in long white robes with palm branches in their hands ethnocentricity is demonstrating a belief in the inherent superiority of one's own ethnic group or culture. And I think evangelicals need to repent of ethnocentricity. We should celebrate diversity on earth as a way of preparing for eternity. It's already the cultural landscape is shifting around us. And the church needs to be leading the way when it comes to authentic diversity, not contrived diversity for a photo op, but real diversity, which comes a reconciliation, right? The things that have been done over the years that um, have been in the basements of the church that we need to drag out the skeletons into the light. We need to, um, in order to move forward, an authentic relationship, right? We have to, um, there has to be a, a, a reconciliation, right? Not dismissing all the water that's gone under the bridge, but, but owning it as a part of this story. The U.S., the United States will be minority white by 2045, let me just let that sink in for a moment. Here we are in 2021. So Lord willing, in our lifetimes, the U.S. is going to be minority white. In this elaborate description of the New Jerusalem, we see the integration of Israel and the church. Over and over again, you have 12 and 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You have the 12 tribes that are the 12 gates and the apostles are the a part of the foundation the very foundation of the new jerusalem is the apostles whose message went out to the gentiles in this elaborate description we see an intentional integration between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Proportionately, the New Jerusalem is the same shape as the Holy of Holies. And this is where we get to this mind-blowing thought of this New Jerusalem, which is the final destination for every real Christian. This New Jerusalem is the same shape as the Holy of Holies. So let me give you a bit of a crash course in the blueprint of the temple. Right? This was the, the tabernacle in the wilderness, which became the temple. You had the outer courts, right? And then you had the inner courts. In the inner, inner courts, you had um, the, court of the, the court of the priest, you had the holy place, and then the most holy place. And the most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant was found. And the and this, God gave them the design. They didn't get to come up with a design. Um, God gave them the blueprints for this. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, 
there is what is called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is formed by these angel wings, these angels that are bowed down and their wings form a seat. And once a year, one guy, the great high priest on the day of atonement could go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. This was sacred ground. And the shape of the new Jerusalem is the same shape as the holy of holies. So I want us to see that that's on purpose, right? That this sacred, this sacred real estate, this was the holiest place on the planet for the Jews was the the holy of holies. This is where the Shekinah glory of God would hover above the mercy seat. But what I want us to see is that the whole city is now an immensely magnified version of the Holy of Holies. Thus, the city is not only architecturally perfect, but has become the most intimate dwelling place of God. And so that is a restoration of the original design, unbroken fellowship with God and with each other. The list of jewels matches the 12 stones on the breastplate of the, of the high priest, corresponds roughly to the 12 precious stones of Aaron's breastplate, the high priest. The prerogatives that once belonged exclusively to the high priest are now reflected to the entire city. And the design of the New Jerusalem is showcasing amazing diversity through a multitude of colors. Here's the application as we drive this home. Here's the application. Christians are already children of light. I am a child of light. If you are a Christian, the Bible says that you are a child of light, but only partly so. Our souls glow with the spirit of Christ. So every human being is born with this eternal part of us. That's the soul. Every human being is immortal. We're all going to have eternal life. It's just a question of where we're going to spend it. And this sets us apart from every other creature on the planet because we have been given the divine image, which is the fingerprint of God on every human being is the soul, that eternal part of us. And if you want to think of it as a light bulb, there's a filament within the bulb. And when the electricity flows through the filament, it illuminates the bulb. And that's what happens. That's a visual of salvation. When the Holy Spirit comes in and flows through the filament of our soul, it is illuminated. However, we're surrounded by the ash of our sinful natures. And sin quenches the fire and seeks to extinguish the light. And so what if you had you had mud that was caked on top of that bulb, right? The, the light's still burning. I don't believe you could ever lose your salvation. Right? I, you, once you become a, ch- a child of God, you can't unbecome a child of God. You can't change your spiritual DNA. But yet I think we can stack dirt on top of the light and we can bury the light until it's no longer visible. We are children of light and only on that day when we stand in heaven will the light be fully unleashed and only then will we reach our full potential at maximum illumination. Only then will our salvation be complete. We are already children of light. We are already citizens of this heavenly city. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, by grace, through faith in Christ, we are placing our citizenship in heaven. Our spiritual citizenship is already in the new Jerusalem through faith in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. 
We're already there. Our citizenship is already there. And we are a part of the same household as all of the other saints throughout history. 1 John 3, 2, dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So what I'm trying to say is, this is a present tense reality for kingdom people. So what? We're studying about this city. We're studying about this final destination for every Christian. What good does that do me now? in my current struggle. Well, uh, listen, if, if we have our minds right about what the Bible is teaching us, is that this future reality should provide present power. It should, prov it should fuel our perseverance through whatever circumstance that we're dealing with. Colossians chapter three, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And so the more that we focus on this future reality, we absorb that future reality into our present circumstance. It's not going to exist. It does exist right now in the unseen realm, in another dimension. The new Jerusalem is there and my citizenship is there already. And I, right, I am, I am now an ambassador in this world from that world, from the new Jerusalem. And, and the more that we meditate, right, it's we absorb the glory and the power. Hebrews chapter 11, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We are not just pilgrims. We are ambassadors, ambassadors from a greater reality ambassadors of heaven on earth. And as we grow in our understanding of our identity, present tense, this is who we will be at the consummation of the kingdom, but it's also a part of our present tense identity. Second Corinthians 3.18, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory listen, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So it's the, it's the Spirit that is the pipeline from our circumstance to this future reality. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit. And where is Jesus right now? Jesus right now is in heaven, right? The, the book of Revelation goes into great detail of the throne room. And so as we, as the spirit in us connects with Jesus, that becomes a, a pipeline of the atmosphere of heaven. So may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that kingdom comes from Christians connecting with their spiritual identity where we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies and we're reflecting that part of our identity in this world, which sets us apart. It makes us holy, which means it makes us different. So Christians are a colony of heaven on earth, and we are piping in that heavenly atmosphere through the Holy Spirit. And it helps us to keep our focus because we're so easily distracted. Well, he ends this chapter by once again taking us back to the Lamb's Book of Life. 
Nothing impure will ever enter. You have these amazing walls, but the gates are always open, which communicates that there is no fear of attack, that to be in a place where there is no fear, no fear of the economy tanking, no fear of a bad health diagnosis, no fear of, of, of a career change, no fear of bankruptcy, no fear of, of nuclear war, no fear of plagues and pandemics. It's hard for us to imagine because we were born in a world that is dominated by fear. We're afraid all the time. And so we lock our doors. And so we hunker in our bunkers because we're afraid. We're afraid of, of dying most of all but we're also afraid of trying. We're afraid of failing. We're afraid of being hurt. And so fear is such, is such a part of all of our lives. Fear has been normalized. And so we don't even notice it anymore. But to be in a place in this new Jerusalem where there is zero fear. I remember back in the 80s, we were afraid that the USSR and the United States we're going to have a nuclear war. And so we were afraid. We were afraid that it's just, it just a matter of when, you know, that somebody would push the button and the, the planet would be destroyed, living in fear of terrorism. And now our culture is so permeated with fear, afraid of getting sick, afraid of dying afraid of making someone else sick. We're just afraid all the time. But he ends the chapter here, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the fourth time in the book of Revelation that the Lamb's book of life has been mentioned. There's no impurity in this city. Back when we used to go to airports, we had to go through the screening process. You'd have to go through the metal detector, right? And then if, if the alarm went off, then this person would come over with a wand detector. They would go through your bags and test for residue. And they started putting in these 360 um, detectors where you get in and this thing goes all the way around you. And in the New Jerusalem, nothing impure, not a speck of impurity is going to be allowed in the city. And I like to think of it as spiritual scanners at every entrance. Every sin is detected. And the only way to gain entrance into the New Jerusalem, which is a magnified, a greatly enhanced, a greatly magnified version of the Holy of Holies is through the blood of the Lamb. You, you remember the story of the Exodus, right? And the only way that those houses avoided judgment was by putting the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. Right? And it wasn't that those people were better than other people. On the contrary, they were just as sinful. It's that when God's judgment approached that house and saw the blood, he knew that something had received the punishment on their behalf. And judgment passed over because of the blood, because of the sacrifice. On the Day of Atonement, one person could go into the most holy place once a year. And the great high priest would go in and he would sprinkle blood of the perfect sacrifice on the mercy seat. And so you have the, the presence of God, the glory of God hovering above the mercy seat. And within the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets of the law. And so when God saw the law, every human being is a lawbreaker. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in order to see the law, he had to look through the blood. And so he judged, something was judged for the sin of the people. 
to see the law, he had to look through the blood. And that's the same thing with the New Jerusalem. The only thing that will gain us entrance into the New Jerusalem is Jesus Christ. And I guess the question I want to conclude on is, do you really know him? Do you have a relationship with God? And the only way that sinful humanity could come into the presence of the triple holy God is through the blood of Jesus. Like any other way, his wrath, like his wrath is a automatic response of his nature. Like we don't, we don't get to plead our case in front of Jesus. We don't get to plead our case in front of God. Boom. We are recipients of his wrath because he is perfectly just. But if we come into his presence and we have the blood of his son smeared over the doorpost of our life, if we have the blood of the sacrifice, when he sees our failures, he has to look through the blood. When he sees our sin, he has to look through the blood. And he knows that his son has paid the full price on our behalf. That's the only way you can gain entrance is to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I would encourage you to do that today, to do that right now. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not a promise. And so do not put off what ultimately matters, to get right with God and be begin to understand what that relationship means, to go from salvation to sanctification, where when we are saved, we become citizens of heaven and what the awesome implications of that are right now. If you're looking for ways to connect, find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just check out the show notes for details. Thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing in your life. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation with God by opening his word for yourself. Love y'all.